0: Good morning, y'all. I'm going to have a few housekeeping things before we get started that they gave me. Um, Welcome to the sixth annual, I think, Tribune Fest. I'd like to welcome you on behalf of Gary Johnson and myself, this one-on-one conversation we're going to have. Um, We're going to take questions at the end of this. But I will counsel you, I don't want any Chris Matthews questions, which is 500 words and then a question mark. So just keep it a, um, And if you want to do Twitters while you're silenced, your phone is silenced, I think it's hashtag TTF in this. And I think each of you has an agenda unfolding of the day's events ahead. of. There's lots of, obviously, conferences and, and things going on throughout the day. So just look at those. Um, I'd like to welcome uh, Governor Gary Johnson, the Libertarian candidate for president. He doesn't really need a formal introduction. He served two terms as governor of New Mexico, our neighboring state, um, and is now the Libertarian candidate for president. The second time he ran in 2012, has now run again in 2016, and climbed Mount Everest. I think you climbed all seven peaks, right? Highest mountain on each of the seven continents. So I think probably that's probably tougher than running for president, or? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> At least you know how to get there and get well, back. Well, it,
1: it, it's it's very prescribed. It's one foot in front of the other, and yeah. there's the top. And yeah. This has got some
0: real pitfalls. And in along both the cases, way. you probably need oxygen. The, <laughs> yeah. Um, I would. I so I tweeted out earlier about what questions you some people would like you to be asked, and I'm going to just start with the one which is Aleppo, WTF. <laughs> um, Oh, <laughs> he 's prepared for this he' prepared i 'm sure he 's been asked this before. Um, what did you learn from that instance and that episode both about yourself but about the the body politic
1: well uh, it 's a lesson not even a lesson it 's just it 's life it's, uh, and it 's relearned uh, it 's how you deal with uh, failure that ultimately determines success and in this case, there is a filter and uh, Aleppo, a, a chance to talk about the underlying policy of Aleppo. And that is, gee, we've got Assad on the east side of the city, the regime. On the west side, we've got the Free Syrian Army that we support, but they're allied with the Islamists, which we don't support, but they're fighting arm in they're fighting arm. In arm. We're arming the Free Syrian Army. They're getting beat. The arms are ending up in Islamist hands. To north, you've got Raqqa, which you could uh, say uh, was contributed to mightily by the fact that we invaded Iraq and that Saddam's henchmen then fled to Raqqa and organized what became ISIS, which didn't even, we didn't even know about until years ago, but that was a void that was created. And we are arm-in-arm, or we're uh, we're supporting the Kurds against ISIS. Uh, The Kurds, though, are sideways with our uh, ally, Turkey, who aren't such a good ally as they were prior to us invading Iraq. This is what happens when we support regime change. And then before any of this happened, we were supporting Assad. We were giving... uh, um, We were giving support to Assad to fight the Islamists before any of this started. So if that sounds about as confusing as it possibly can be, it is, and this is what we do when we support regime change. So Matthew, yeah, there's Aleppo, and there's the Aleppo, uh, uh, American Latin, I'm sorry, what's Aleppo? Well, the Syrian city at the, okay, okay, all right.
0: Here's (laughs) Aleppo. Got it. So uh, I I always thought Aleppo was dog food for puppies or something. I'm kidding. You can say that. I know I can can say say that. that. (laughs) 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 Or a medicine for for (laughs) cholesterol.
1: Um, and and I get this all the time. Also, or I've heard this: ninety percent of Americans don't know what Aleppo is. Well, ninety percent of America is not running for president yeah, of the United yeah. States.
0: I am, and no
1: excuse. Well, none. so
0: I want to bro- to broaden this conversation um, related to that. A president, Gary Johnson, foreign policy. Right, you're in the White House. What is the underlying value or value set that would would predict? moves of a a President, Gary Johnson, in his foreign policy. So uh,
1: what I think is significant in this presidential cycle is there have been a number of polls conducted among active military personnel on whom they support for President of the United States. And that's me. And I would like to think that it's based on what I'm saying, which is judicious use of the military. When we're attacked, we're going to attack back. But when we go in and we support regime change, it results in the loss of life, our men and service women, the loss of life, innocence in these countries. So what's the filter? What's Gary Johnson as president? There has not been one support of the US government by, of regime change in my lifetime that I can think of that has turned out positive. And we always get involved in situations where the situations are horrible. But we get involved, and guess what? Now it's our horrible that's in charge that is just as bad or oftentimes worse.
0: In the last 30 years, um, basically presidents have taken military action without support of Congress, almost, in almost every single case. Would you, as president now, holding the office of president, would you military intervention?
1: Yes, and that this should take place now. Congress has abdicated its responsibility to the uh, executive uh, and to the military. And how about an open debate and a discussion over what is happening in Syria right now? And with regard to Syria, the only solution to Syria is joining hands with Russia diplomatically. But when you have all these intertwined conflicts where we're supporting two sides of the same conflict? We're supporting both sides? This is a complex chess game that has no positive outcome whatsoever. And we've put ourselves there, and I can just just hear the pressures as President of the United States. Well, we can't do this because human life is at stake, because here's who we've supported. But you can't do the other side because Here's who we've supported and the human life that is a- at stake on the other side of the coin. I can, I can just hear it. Pr- president Presidency, uh, Johnson Weld, Libertarian, we are not going to involve ourselves in these situations for those eight years. It's not going to happen. If we're attacked, we're going to attack back. And from a foreign policy standpoint, I've said that the biggest threat in the world, in my opinion, is North Korea and that at some point these intercontinental ballistic missiles are going to actually work and the only solution to North Korea is joining hands with China diplomatically to address this and we've got 40,000 troops in South Korea there is no chance that North Korea invades South Korea conventionally no chance if they start lobbying nuclear weapons over the border well we've got them covered with our umbrella but Is everybody taking a step back? Whoa, that's the horrible situation that exists right now in Korea.
0: So uh, you brought up nuclear weapons, and there's been a conversation that I've watched over the last, actually, few days or weeks, which is, is should a president have the singular ability, should a president of the United States by himself have the singular ability to launch a nuclear weapon?
1: Well, somebody has to have that singular responsibility. I I understand that. And... uh, um, I would like you all to believe that um, that controlling that process, uh, that there would be a, a steady hand on that process and all the implications uh, that went along
0: with it. Do you have confidence that the people on the ballot this year have that steady hand? Uh,
1: I believe that Hillary. I, I believe that Hillary, and this is I, I do not believe this is intentional, uh, but Hillary has been the architect of this foreign policy. Uh, that we have right now and not and not intentional either you uh, you can't you can't intend this to happen and then Trump you know he says some things that make a lot of sense but then in the next minute the compass gets broken again and the needle spinning and I and I have no idea so when Trump talks about nuclear weapons for Japan or South Korea uh, that's in the opposite direction that we should be moving
0: a process question because Monday night there's a debate, the first presidential debate, which will probably get Super Bowl-sized audience, probably 100 million people, 90 million people will watch that. You're not going to be there because of certain standards set by a debate commission that was, has been basically run by the two political parties. You had said up until then that you really, in order to have a, a legitimate shot, a real legitimate shot to win in November, you needed to be in that debate. What happens now?
1: Well, that's still the case. The only way to have a chance at winning is to be in the presidential debates. There are three presidential debates. Uh, We have been excluded from the first one. I hope what I'm about to tell you outrages you, uh, because it outrages me, and I just really found out about it five days ago. Ross Perot was polling less than we are right now when he was allowed into that first debate. And when he was allowed into that first debate, he went from being less than where we're at now to leading in that presidential contest. So getting excluded from the first debate, um, as my best friend and fiancé Kate says, just your luck, Gary. You're going to get elected president, and you don't have to go through the hassle of the first debate. (laughs) And... (laughs) And does is anybody, is anybody predicting that after Monday night, the entire country is going to collectively go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, we're in such good hands? <laughs> I don't think so.
0: I don't think so. Well, I think that's a frustration for a lot of people. Just take a look at the data and take personalities out. This is the first time we've ever experienced two candidates disliked and distrusted by a majority of the country, right, and leading the two major parties. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in their races both hit on that the system is rigged. In many ways, the system is rigged. Donald Trump was, over, in his own mind, was able to overcome it. Bernie Sanders was not. Is the presidential debate another pillar of the rigging?
1: It's, it's another pillar of the rigging. And right now, when people are going to register to vote, this is nationwide— 50% of people that are going to register to vote right now are registering as independent. Well, where is that representation? And that's and that's what we've got here. So for me, um, I have always said that 15% is a fair number, uh, but it's how it gets administered. Not one national poll uh, has has me on the top line of that national poll. Meaning, who are you gonna vote for? Trump, Johnson, or Clinton? Not one single national poll where that's the lead question. 100% of the media starts off by reporting this as a two-person race, Trump and Clinton, and then if they get in the weeds, uh, well, then it's, uh, well, what if we add Johnson to that? So that's that's the polling phenomenon. It is treated as a two-person race. Seventy percent of America does not know that I am running uh, in this race. Seventy percent of America doesn't recognize that there is another choice. And I will also point out, Bill Weldon, myself, libertarian nominees, president, vice president, were the only candidates on the ballot in all 50 states. Only third party on the ballot in all 50 states.
0: So what would you, let's, let's pause it that you may have a hard time winning in November if you're not on the ballot in the course of this. Let's just posit that. What would be, absent taking the Oval Office, what's a victory? What, do you, what would, in, in this whole time you've run and by the time you get to November rights, what would you consider a success in this?
1: Well, I, I'm already considering this a big success. Uh, this last week, a poll was released, and I am leading among independents. So I am giving a lot of people their first vote, meaning their first choice. And if you want to vote for the lesser of two evils, have at it. But I suggest there is a first choice, and I'm giving that opportunity to a lot of people.
0: What, what do you think this year causes in its aftermath on independent candidates going forward?
1: Well, uh, I think that this is going to be the, I predict this is going to be the demise of the Republican Party. Um, I think that Republicans uh, have always stood for smaller government and that uh, nothing that Donald Trump says is about smaller government. Neither candidates are addressing uh, the, the deficit. Neither candidates are saying that we should reform in any way Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security. And Donald Trump is talking about a massive increase in funding uh, for the military. Um, I just think that the, that the two have become so polarized. When, just, just by the math, when 28% of America are independent, um, this has finally come to focus. And it's extremely difficult to get on the ballot uh, in all 50 states. That's a rigged game unto itself, uh, but the Libertarians deserve credit uh, for being a party since 1972 and a party of principle, talking about uh, limited government, personal freedom, and with regard to the military, uh, let's, let's stop with these regime changes. And free markets, neither of the two candidates either are talking about free markets, and ultimately that's more U.S. jobs, not less U.S. jobs.
0: Somebody in the aftermath of this year that wants to that might want to say that give Americans more choice, what would you suggest people in this room or outside this room should do after this year if they really want to have create something other than the Democrat or Republican Party?
1: Well, I I, th- I think the that the ball has started to roll. Uh, I, I don't see politics ever being the same again. And it's because uh, the two parties have become so polarized and We're we're seeing it. It's uh, it's a fact. And um, uh, with regard ramifications going forward, uh, I think it will be state to state that it'll be easier to get on the ballot uh, because people will be demanding that.
0: Um, Do you think the barrier to success what, what is the major barrier to success? I mean, I've had this conversation with folks, and where they say, well, it's our, the system that we have, and it forces people, and it has to be a two-person two choice because, constitutionally, the way it's set up, is it a media problem? Is it a voter problem who, who are afraid to cast a vote they think might be a waste, so they end up being pushed to decide between the Republicans and Democrat? What's the fundamental barrier to success or has been the barrier to success?
1: Well, um, Matthew, you, you said uh, this was constitutionally laid out. The Constitution did not, the, the founders did not envision parties. Um, <laughs> that's something that I hope uh, comes out of this. And um, uh, I, I just think that there is a level of awareness right now uh, that will
0: bring uh, an end to this a, as we know it. Um, on Military intervention. I'm going to go back to that again. Give me, I'm going to give you three instances. Vietnam, Iraq War I, Iraq War II. What would as President Johnson have done in those three? Well, Vietnam,
1: my first, my first uh, vote for president uh, was uh, George McGovern because of the, of the first time I was eligible to vote. Let's get out of Vietnam. That made, that made no sense to me whatsoever. Iraq 1, uh, I'm, not going to, um, I, I'm not going to second guess, but this was a military intervention. This was not regime change. And uh, in retrospect, pulling out, not going into Baghdad when Bush 1 said that, um, hey, this is going to result in a civil war to which there will be no end, uh, that looks in retrospect to be pretty smart. So we got out. Iraq 2, um, I said from the very beginning that we have the military surveillance capability to see Iraq roll out any weapons of mass destruction. And if they do that, um, all of our options are open. But if we go into Iraq, um, this was in 2003, I said, I think we're going to become involved in a civil war uh, to which there will be no end. If I may add to that, uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, I supported Afghanistan. We were attacked... (laughs) We attacked back. But in 2003, the attack was against al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. And in 2003, after having been in Afghanistan for seven months, we wiped out al-Qaeda. We should have gotten out of Afghanistan after seven months, left our options open to come back and get Osama bin Laden. I would get us out of Afghanistan immediately. And I recognize that there would be a lot of issues associated with getting out of Afghanistan, namely, a lot of people are probably going to be put in harm's way. A lot of people's lives are going to be at stake because of their having backed the United States. Uh, This is not without precedent. I think we can offer them asylum uh, citizenship in the United States for those that are affected. Getting out of Afghanistan tomorrow and all of the consequences, you can call them negative consequences that will result from getting out of Afghanistan tomorrow, those same negative consequences are going to exist 20 years from now. Same consequences. Or I guess for some, we're going to be in Afghanistan
0: forever. The budget. From most people's perspective, the two political parties, the two leadership of the political parties doesn't seem to want to really fundamentally do anything about the budget, the deficit or the debt that's been accumulated. They both talk about doing something about it. The Republicans and the Democrats talk about it. How do you actually solve the budget problem?
1: Well, uh, we're not going to get elected um, king or dictator. There are constitutional limits to being president, so you can either support Uh, or you can uh, oppose what Congress passes. But Bill Weld and myself are pledging to submit a balanced budget to Congress in the first 100 days. Now, why a balanced budget? Well, a balanced budget has everything to do with young people. I'm going to get my retirement. I'm going to get my health care. But you got to pay for it. And oh, by the way, it'll never be around because the system cannot sustain this. I mean, we are headed to bankruptcy. And bankruptcy, when it comes to a government that can print money, bankruptcy is when the dollars that you have just don't buy anything because of the inflation that goes along with printing money. Same, uh, a much bigger amount of money chasing the same amount of goods and services that's going to result in inflation. So why, why have a balanced budget? It's, it's for the future of this country. That's, that's the reason for a balanced budget. And you can't balance the budget if you're not gonna reform Medicaid and Medicare, and I have my ideas on Medicaid and Medicare. You can't, uh, you cannot bury your, it's not an option to do nothing when it comes to Social Security. It's not an option to do nothing, and yet Hillary and Trump both do nothing when it comes to, Medi- oh, Hillary, excuse me, Hillary's gonna expand Medicaid and Medicare Um, not reform them to where we're spending less money. Social Security, there has to be reform to Social Security. And we are spending as much money as the rest of the world combined when it comes to our military. Look, we will maintain military supremacy uh, in the world. That is important. But the BRAC Commission, or the Pentagon itself, in the mid-'90s, if you'll remember, commissioned uh, the BRAC, uh, Base Realignment uh, Closure Committee, They recommended that 25% uh, U.S. bases could be closed, but there has not been the uh, political will to go along with seeing that happen. That was the Pentagon itself. So we would reinstitute BRAC uh, as a starter uh, to be able to cut military spending. You don't cut military spending, we're not going to have a military in the future.
0: Well, so that gets to a point. I have two questions I want to follow up with you on that. First is there always seems to be whenever there's a conversation about cutting the budget, it's like not in my backyard, right? Like you can go ahead and cut, but cut, go cut that person's stuff, but don't cut mine because mine is valuable. And they all do it and then nothing ends up happening. Do you as president basically use the bully pulpit and highlight the, I would, let's call it the hypocrisy of how people approach the budget?
1: Well, that's exactly how you do it. And then, and then here's a pledge on my part. Uh, I will be the most frugal president to serve as president of the United States uh, as anyone in your lifetime. You cannot uh, Explain do Explain what
0: you mean by that. Explain.
1: Air, Air Force One that it costs $10 million for the president to go to, down to Walgreens. Of course, he doesn't go down to Walgreens. <laughs> <laughs> that the president of the United States snarls every major city that he pulls into because you know they take over a hotel and and we've we've all witnessed it. Well, there has to be a smarter way to travel. Uh, there has to be uh, there has to be an example set at the very top uh, to spend a lot less money as the executive. And I would Air Force One is the aircraft that the president is flying in. Does that have to be that 747? I hope not.
0: So on um, you mentioned Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. One criticism of you and of the libertarians is, is that there's, they lack compassion. They're going to cut these needed programs that people need because they're against government programs, and then it's going to leave people without a safety net. How do you answer that?
1: I'd like to start off by answering that question with, you're not electing a couple of unknowns here, myself and Bill Weld. We are two former Republican governors that served in heavily Democrat states, and each of us got reelected. We were not wallflowers in office. People were not dying on the streets, which is, was the criticism of me before I was going to take off safety net. I do believe in a health care safety net. Uh, But that said, um, we can draw new lines of eligibility when it comes to Medicaid and Medicare, and in my heart of hearts, having served as governor of New Mexico, if the federal government would have block-granted New Mexico a fixed amount of money for Medicaid, uh, I believe I could have drawn new lines of eligibility no one would have gone without, and if we would do that Nationwide, 50 states, 50 laboratories of innovation and best practice. In my opinion, we would have some fabulous success that would get emulated, uh, and that's how we do it with regard to Medicaid. Medicare, I think Medicare has to devolve to the states also, uh, something that currently is not taking place. But Washington, one size fits all. Uh, They are incapable. And as you all know, the demographics, uh, baby boomers, um, look, uh, this, this system has yet to see uh, the strains that are going to get applied to it, and bankruptcy is really right around the corner. It is
0: just completely unsustainable, the current course. Your faith, you, which doesn't often get a conversation, uh, there's not often a conversation about your faith. How does your faith or how you grew up or what is informs you informs your personal life and, and how you conduct yourself and your leadership.
1: So my my faith um, I have I have always told the truth. Um, and always growing up, you know, you, you what I found is if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> I think I think the one unforgivable in life uh, is hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. Bill Weld and I are not hypocrites. And my faith, living by the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have others do unto you, um, that has served not only me, but you're all recognizing how well-served we all are when we live by that golden rule.
0: Do you think that that converse, the, the faith aspect of our country and our society has been captured by a segment that doesn't necessarily represent the faith conversation of the majority of the country?
1: Well, I'll, I'll leave that to those that are involved in those decisions. But um, look, if you're, if you're looking for those components, which I think, which I just mentioned, I think those are the components that make up faith, in my opinion.
0: The libertarian uh, brand um, and what you run under, um, in some, for some Americans, is a negativity to it. Um, I think people, many people automatically, they think, OK, small government, but they automatically think, OK, legalize, decriminalize drugs. They're decriminalized pot. Is that a drag? Is the libertarian brand a, dra- a drag for you because of that? and that's something you have to overcome and explain, or is that an asset?
1: Well, I think it's a big asset. Um, I think right now Bill Weld and I occupy this big six-lane highway down the middle of American politics right now. I think 60% of Americans are fiscally responsible. Smaller government, less taxes. I can spend my money better than the government can spend my money. I think 60% of Americans are socially inclusive, that people should be able to make their own choices in their own lives, period, as long as those choices don't put other people in harm's way. I think 60% of Americans are skeptical that when it comes to military intervention, when it comes to, and I draw a distinction between intervention and regime change, all right? Regime change always gets us in trouble, but I think We're all skeptical about the military and the fact that the world isn't a more safe place. Arguably, it's a less safe place. And it's because we've squandered our men and service women and what they were sent to do in the first place. And then lastly, uh, free trade. That there is a magic to free trade. Crony capitalism is alive and well. Crony capitalism, that's that's pay to play, that's government interference. Uh, in the marketplace, uh, picking winners and losers. Free market is devoid of government interference. You can pay to get advantage, and the system is gamed. It's for sale. It's being sold, having been governor of New Mexico for eight years. You can put an end to crony capitalism from day one, because it just simply doesn't exist. My takeaway from having been governor of New Mexico, Good government was easy; it wasn't hard.
0: I want you brought up trade, and before I turn to a couple of personal questions, I wanted to ask you. Many people think that the trade deals that have been done aren't necessarily free trade. Are have been basically done by a certain number, a group of large corporations that are doing it in their interest, but not necessarily interest in the broad body politic. A number of trade deals have gone down the way. Do you think the trade deals have been? Free and fair, or do you think those trade deals have been part of a, a rigging by, certain entities in the country? So I, I'm not doing this in a void.
1: Um, I I'm president of the United States. Certainly, it's integral to being president. But with regard to economics, uh, Jeff Myron is my economics advisor, Cato Institute, the entire economic staff at Chapman University. Um, Michael, what you what you point out is is that. Um, Um, is that crony capitalism does exist. Does it exist to to degree when it comes to the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership? Perhaps, but all of everyone who is advising me suggests that this does make things better. And one of the pledges I'm making is, is that count on me to sign on anything that makes things better. Uh, And in this case, I do believe it will result in more U.S. jobs, not less U.S. jobs. And if there are issues uh, with uh, the TPP, well, that's this ongoing process of let's be engaged in, in making this better.
0: Personal crisis that you've gone through and lesson learned. What, what's a personal crisis you've gone through in the entirety of your life that, and that it taught you a lesson?
1: Well, the pers- personal crisis always has to do, I think, with um, with not telling the truth, and I and I do speak growing up, and uh, and not that I wasn't always a really I, I always considered myself to be a really principled guy, but when you get when you get sideways with life, it it has to do with uh, in in my case, um, we should live the healthiest lives that we can possibly live. So in my particular case, uh, I, I've come to some epiphanies that. Uh, to be as fit as I possibly can be every single day of my life makes my life work. Uh, I always tell people, you should find out whatever it is that makes your life work and get as much of it as you possibly can. If that's golf, play as much golf as you possibly can. That may be art, that may be music, that may be writing, that may be the job that you have. Ideally, uh, the job you have would be the big... When... When you have a job that you love getting up and doing, how can life be any more fulfilling than having that job? So uh, personal crisis, uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't define any aspect of my life as having been a crisis, but it has been an evolution. And I, I've been pretty rock steady uh, on this for a long time. I was born with an absolute overdose of common sense.
0: <laughs> and humility.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and you're running for president of the United States, you know. It takes a little ego. <laughs> it just takes a little bit of ego to do that. I recognize that.
0: Professional mistake. A professional mistake as whether as a governor or some other thing you've done that you thought, okay, now in the aftermath, I I did something I did something wrong. I should have done something better. And how did you change, as a leader?
1: Well, there were never any crises. I I don't know if you all know this or not, but I did grow. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. I did grow a one-man handyman business, me, uh, to employ over a thousand people. Uh, in that process of growing that business, there were a couple of uh, uh, there were a couple of magic uh... formulas if you will one was sharing in the profits amazingly if you share in the profits the pie just gets a lot bigger when everybody's pulling in the same direction the lessons learned when it comes to hiring and firing there's nothing easier than hiring people there's nothing more difficult than firing people but if you can't fire people it doesn't work, it just doesn't work, and I've always maintained that that's actually the breakdown between the public and the pi- private sector, As we elect a whole bunch of people who have never hired and fired, they find it extremely difficult, they find it extremely easy to hire, nothing's easier than hiring people, nothing's more difficult than firing people, and if you've never fired people, as horrible as it is, it's a complete breakdown when you keep people in places that they shouldn't be. And that ends up to be a two-way street. You know, it's, it's my side, it's their side, it's not working, you've got to identify it, you've got to fix it.
0: It reminds me of it, there's nothing easier than creating a government program, but there's nothing more difficult than getting rid of a government program. We
1: don't, and we don't get rid of any government programs. I made the statement the other day that I would abolish the Department of Homeland Security the fact that it's nothing value-added, that it's just a a bureaucratic overlay, and everybody, you're going to abolish the... We never abolish anything that the government does. The Department of Education, what is value-added about the Federal Department of Education? Nothing is value-added. Let Texas keep the money in the first place. Texas can determine educational outcomes better than Washington. (laughs)
0: This election, the last year, last couple of years, has sort of stretched or broken a lot of the boundaries of uh, what many would call normal, civilized, respectful politics. Do you worry about that? And is there, any going, is there going back to, a, to the, the old days?
1: Three scenarios in this upcoming election. Trump's elected. Clinton is elected. Does anybody think that the polarity that exists right now is gonna get any better? Nobody believes that. Okay, third scenario. Johnson will get elected, big six-lane highway down the middle, gonna hire Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, everybody's gonna be Libertarian-leaning, and standing back with a smile on their faces, calling out both sides to come to the table to deal with issues of the day. And I'll just ask you, which of those three scenarios has the possibility of succeeding? Well, the third scenario has the only possibility of succeeding.
0: Assuming the third scenario is, is going to be hard to happen, let's just assume it's going to be hard to happen. I think you're at 9 or 10% in the polls right now and not being in the first debate. If you wake up on November 9th, what scares you more? <laughs> President Trump? President-elect Trump or President-elect Hillary? Really? I, I've had You're going to have to answer this question since you tell the truth. <laughs> I,
1: I've had nightmares over me dropping out ahead of time. So most scared is that somehow I wouldn't be in the mix. Somehow I wouldn't offer people their first vote. And clearly, am I not the first vote? If you're going to vote for Gary Johnson, that's a first vote, and that's a statement that goes forward regardless of who wins the election.
0: So I have five, I'm going to ask you five rapid-fire questions, okay? <laughs> um, best, president, best president of all time.
1: Uh, well, based on what I know, I, I like Jefferson. I, this guy was, uh, this was somebody who really did have humility and overdose and was incredibly accomplished, and so I'm a Jefferson fan. First libertarian, and I've heard him described as the first libertarian.
0: Um, best political movie. Uh,
1: what was the, uh, what was the, um, uh, Ro- Roberts. Um,
0: uh, help me. No,
1: Bob. Bob Roberts. Yeah, Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts.
0: Um, not you. Mr. Smith. Mr. Johnson goes to Washington. <laughs>
1: I did have a Mr. Smith Goes to Washington experience. I will tell you that.
0: What was the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington experience?
1: Well, that I was the prince and the pauper. That I had the that I had the big seal, you know, and I was using it to crack nuts. I didn't, re, you know, oh. that it was <laughs> that it was this that you actually could survive uh, being yeah. um, honest and telling the truth and playing it straight up. Um, it worked.
0: Book you're reading, or have just je- or. Finished in the last few months that you would recommend?
1: Well, uh, let's see. Um, uh, I'm a Hampton Sides fan. He's from Santa Fe. So, in the kingdom of uh, ice and snow, mm. I might get, have that title wrong also, but it was about the fir- one of the first attempts to get to the North Pole. That was pretty fascinating.
0: Somebody that's around either your daughter who's here today, Saya, right? Saya? Saya. Saya's here today. Saya, stand up, say hi. Where are you? There she is, Gary. Um, Either your daughter, or your son, or a relationship you're in. What's your most annoying habit? They would say. You want to say (laughs) it? Say it. Does he have an annoying habit? He's not. He refuses to say. Awesome. Well, like, honesty runs in the family. (laughs) Um, Finally, what's your favorite swear word? You can say it here. Yeah, I'm sure I can. What does it start with?
1: Well, favorite and one most used. Yes, uh, yes.
0: Okay, we're I did, go.
1: well I, I, will, I will just reiterate that I was asked a question the other day about Bill Weld dropping out of the race and occasionally you know you get a question that is just so in left field that I did answer that
0: uh, as bullshit okay. <laughs> okay that's a good swear word um, we're going to take questions now so I don't know how this works I, if you say them I'll repeat them if People can't hear them, and we'll take it for a few minutes. um, Right here in the front. Hi, Governor Johnson. Uh, Say your name. My name is Allison Hale. Hey, Allison. Um, I know you're planning to
2: abolish the Department of Education. Okay. I know you're planning to abolish the Department of Education, but do you, under what circumstances, if any, Do you see a role for the federal government to play in education?
1: Um, So um, I'm not. I'm not going to get elected dictator. Uh, I'm not going to get elected king. So I don't have the power to wave a magic wand and abolish the federal Department of Education. But I will just point out that the federal Department, that Texas gives Washington 13 cents, and then Texas gets back 11 cents. That's the bureaucratic wash and dry cycle. And then Washington says to Texas, to get your 11 cents, you have to do A, B, C, D, and it costs Texas 15 cents to do that. So how about Texas keeps the 6 cents from the very start uh, and that Texas determines how best to educate their kids? And I'm believing in a when 50 states are engaged in this competition to create better education, that there will be some models that will just be extraordinarily successful. If Texas isn't the one implementing these models, but recognizes that some other state is doing that, I'm believing that Texas is going to emulate that. I think also that people believe that the Department of Education was established under George Washington, uh, the Department of Education was established under Jimmy Carter.
2: Yes, sir. Hello. There you go. Oh, good morning, Mr. Johnson. My name is uh, Raza Muhammad, and I have a question from you. When you said, uh, first of all, I want to let you know that you definitely have a lot of support in the military, and I have some active duty military friends who put in their Facebook profile pictures at let Gary debate. So that's one point. The other thing is you said you wanted to get out uh, out of Afghanistan in about seven months, like by your policy. And you said the people that are left behind, we can give them asylums or uh, uh, give them some kind of special immigration. Well, my question here is about uh, there's interpreters that work with the US government in Afghanistan, Iraq, and they come to the United States on special immigration visa programs which is that like when you serve with the U.S. Army or Marines or Air Force for a year or two, you get qualified for the special immigration visa, that you come to the U.S. with a green card. What's happening right now is that the Congress Let's, can is, we
0: Can we get to a question? There's like a line of people. Okay, yeah, what's
2: happening right now is that Congress, uh, the next fiscal year, is trying to shut down that special immigration visa for the intrepiders that were serving uh, and saving a lot of lives of the American soldiers and diplomats out there. So uh, how are you going to fight Congress with that?
1: Well, uh, uh, it was so- something that I'm not aware of until you just now said it. But you know, we we right now there is an, uh, an incredible aversion to uh, immigration. Uh, I do believe that as a country we should embrace immigration. And being aware of that, um, I would have to think that I would be able to have some significant input on remedying that.
0: Uh, and let's keep them really short because there's. I think about 20 people that want to ask, and we'll try to get to as many as we can.
2: So my name is Hannah Aldisuki, and I'm a high school student with a group of other students uh, in our organization dedicated to engaging the youth in politics. I'm sorry. And, the last sentence. Uh, I'm with the student organization dedicated to engaging the youth in politics. So last night we asked John Kasich what he thought about the youth in politics, and he said we should wait till after school to be involved. So what do you? What role do you think the youth should have in politics? And do you agree with uh,
1: Mr. Kasich? I'd, I'd just probably take the other the other side of that that <laughs> politics is. A part of life, and and is supposed to be life, right?
0: Anyway. Yes, ma'am.
2: Good morning, Governor. Um, my name is Denise Palacios. Quite frankly, we all know in this room that you're not going to be elected. Although many of us, <laughs> many of us would wish that you were. Um, I'm, I'm being very honest. So. What are your plans after this? Um, I've heard many hypotheticals from you, what you would have done, what you would do if you were elected president, but what are you going to do after November?
1: If I'm not elected president at the end of November, I'm going to ski 120 days this season. Uh, (laughs) I I live north of Taos, um, and by the way, I have always been really grateful to Texas. Texas has to have somewhere to vacation, and Taos is (laughs) really. And uh, if I'm not elected president of the United States, I'm planning to ride the divide uh, next June, which is a mountain bike race uh, from Banff, Canada, to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. It's 3,000 miles, and it's on the Continental Divide. So I would I, I have a life. I didn't arrive uh, here by mistake, and uh, I, I would really, though, uh, much prefer to embark on a brand new adventure, which I'm believing still has the opportunity to happen. Ross Perot, when he was polling lower than I am right now, before his presidential debate, after his presidential debate, for a brief period of time, he was leading in the presidential polls, until everything that transpired, that I, it dropped out. I can't connect the dots on what actually happened. But that, that has a possibility possibility uh, of happening this time,
0: right on election do, day. Do, do, would you ever see yourself, if you're, if you're not elected president, as helping others who might run as independents locally or in states around the country? Do you see yourself staying involved in, pushing the break to, to break down the barriers of the two parties?
1: Well, and, I, and doing that as a Libertarian. I, I really, I, I think the Libertarian Party has, uh, has really, um, it really contributes. I really do believe that. So as a candidate, uh, no, this is it for me from a candidate standpoint. But staying involved and potentially pushing the candidacies of Libertarians, yeah, I, uh, that would be fun.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you. My name is Logan Smith, and I'm an Allen High School student um, in Texas. So, um, and my question is that, um, what would you do to improve relations with the African-American community in law enforcement?
1: Uh, question, uh, African-American community, I-, I would recognize that black lives do matter, and they matter because blacks are being shot, uh, there's six times more likelihood that you'll be shot by a policeman than if you're white. With regard to drug-related crime, if you are arrested and you are of color, there's a four times more likelihood that you'll end up behind bars than if not. Uh, The recognition that as whites, when we get pulled over, we're not harassed in the same way that blacks are harassed. We're not pushed up against the car. We're not told to put our hands on top of the hood of the car. And if it were me and I were told to do that, I would be incredibly angry. I would be incensed to the point that they might put cuffs on me. I do believe that uh, the, the roots of this discrimination also stem from the war on drugs, uh, and I've been more outspoken than any politician in the country regarding legalization of marijuana. Uh, uh, I, do, I do think that we're gonna legalize marijuana, and I do think that when that happens, I think we're gonna uh, I think as a country, collectively, we're going to look at the drug problem first as a health issue rather than a criminal justice issue. But when you look at the, when you look at the roots of, of police violence and, and blacks, I, I think uh, roots do exist going back to the drug war, but we all, we all have had our heads in the sand on this issue, me being the first one to have their heads in the sand on this issue. I don't think this country's ever been better. We get along with uh, one another better. We communicate better with one another. Our kids are smarter than ever. Black Lives Matter is an issue that we all have. Uh, but I think we're going to come to grips with this faster, better. Uh, things will improve in a, in, a, in a quicker way than ever before. That's, that's my belief. That's, that's the country we live in today.
0: I want to follow up to the question before I take another question. The drug question is that most families, and probably every person in this room has somebody, they've struggled, somebody's struggled with addiction in their family, alcohol, drugs, whatever the thing happens to be, some addictive behavior. I have family, my younger sister died of a drug overdose and I've had a son that went through a, a series of, of rehabs in this. Do you worry at all on, on, on your drug stand? Um, and I would just like you to explain, because I think people, a, a lot of people sort of say, I like the idea of the freedom of it, but I worry about the level of addiction in our country. Do you worry about that at all?
1: Well, 90% of the drug problem is prohibition-related, not use-related. And that is not to discount the problems with use and abuse, but that should be the focus. So there are tens of millions of Americans who are convicted felons in this country that but for our drug laws would otherwise be tax-paying, law-abiding citizens. So you bring up the fact that addiction does exist uh, and that it does ruin lives. Uh, true, but when you add the criminal justice system to what you just said, that's what ruins lives beyond the, the former. And I have always maintained that legalizing marijuana, uh, on a medis- from a medicinal standpoint, marijuana products have not killed anybody. There's not one documented death, due to the use of marijuana products, that directly compete with legal prescription drugs that kill 30,000 people a year. And on the recreational side, I have always maintained that legalizing marijuana will lead to less overall substance abuse, because people will find it as such a safer alternative than everything else that's out there, starting with alcohol. The campaign to legalize marijuana in Colorado, the campaign was marijuana is safer than alcohol. That was the campaign.
0: Yes. Hello, my name is Angelica. And my question is,
2: what is your perspective on the NSA mass surveillance and Edward Snowden?
0: Thank you. The NSA, NSA surveillance uh, mass and surveillance. Snowden. What's your perspective on those?
1: Uh, based on what I know about Edward Snowden, I would pardon Edward Snowden based on what I know, which is And then it is my understanding that uh, the NSA was an executive order, uh, 12333, implemented by uh, Harry Truman. Uh, And I would like to see, uh, and as president, if it's an executive order, I'd like to see these satellites um, turned away from 110 million Verizon users. I'd like to see the satellites turned away from you and I as U.S. citizens, recognizing that there is due process out there uh, for anyone that's suspected of crime or harm against the rest of us, but that uh, this uh, metadata collection, uh, I think we've fought wars uh, over not having that, this, what's happening right now, take place.
0: Yes, sir.
2: Good morning, Governor Johnson, Uh, Pete Yakis. As President of the United States, who are you nominating for the Supreme Court?
1: Well, uh, uh, who who would my nominations be for uh, Supreme Court? The the notion that uh, the justice would rule on the basis of original intent, and original intent that the Constitution bottom line is about limiting the size and scope of government, that it's about maximizing personal liberty and freedom,
0: I think this may be the last question. Good morning. Sorry. Uh, My question
1: is, the first election that I I was able to participate in was 2004. And ever since, it seems like the discord has gotten more negative, more divisive. Uh,
0: You're elected president in this coming cycle. You're facing a Democratic Senate, Republican House, and an opening on the Supreme Court. What is your strategy to kind of mend those fences and start to bring this country together to uh, have a productive Congress?
1: that uh, rather, than, rather than Trump or Clinton getting elected and wanting to kill the other party, rather than engaging in this two-party, we wanna kill each other, our arbiter in chief, a smile on my face uh, telling the truth to the American people that, look, there are issues here that both sides need to, need to come to the table, and, and, and you're not coming to the table. Come on, let's deal with these issues. Republicans, you're about smaller government? Uh, Not really. Uh, And and Democrats, uh, ending the war on drugs, civil liberties, um, and ending ending the military interventions. Come on, there's some really serious issues that most people want to see addressed, and neither of you are doing it.
0: So it's 9.30. We've got our time. Please give Governor Johnson a round of applause.
2: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you.